everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Creativity Sucks, a new podcast brought to you by Creative Review magazine. My name is Eliza Williams, and I'm the editor at CR, and will be your host for this show. Now, if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you'll know that we at CR don't actually think creativity sucks, but we do think that some aspects of the advertising and design industries could do with a shake-up. So we're giving that a try with this podcast, where we're asking some pointed questions about the industry in the hope of generating some ideas for change. In this episode, we're turning our attention to digital design with the topic, why are digital products so complicated? We'll be getting to the bottom of this thorny problem with three expert guests. Simon Beckerman, the founder behind Depop, and most recently the food and drink app Delhi. James Greenfield, co-founder and CEO of branding agency Koto and writer, strategist, and cultural commentator, Laura Oxford. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, to kick our discussion off, I thought we'd start on a positive note by considering what makes for great digital design. James, perhaps you can start us off. What do you look for most in a good digital app or product? I think, for me, the key thing is balance. Um, I want to see some newness, something that feels engaging, something that feels exciting, but then it's balanced with some usability, um, something that means that people are going to feel like beyond kind of being wowed by it when they first open it, there's something that's going to make them stick around. I think we've gone through a very interesting time when you look back at the kind of last 15 years with with the kind of uh, invention of the smartphone where when these kind of first came out, we had to teach people what apps were. We had to kind of really get people to think about digital experiences beyond websites. People are now very au fait with them. And what that means is that you have to actually work a lot harder to get them to download them, to engage in them, to use in them. Um, and so therefore, yeah, it's all about that balance for me. I want to see something that, that something that makes me feel like this is new and I'm going to get something out of this. But at the same time, I'm, I'm aware of my audience and how they're going to use it. I was going to um, say that what I kind of look for is uh, like simplicity combined with a kind of astute insight into the industry that you're kind of leaning into. So, you know, if we look at social media as apps, as an example, you can either like um, kind of build an app on an existing industry norm um, that kind of builds on it in a, in a, in a new way. So something like Clubhouse did this at a very specific point in time, or you can build something simple, which challenges industry norms and what exists already out there. So something like be real, which is the new social media app, which is all about kind of spontaneity. But I think in either way, no matter what kind of insight you're using to lean into this industry, you really have to make it really simple, which is ironic given where this conversation is probably going to go. One of the main reasons Web3 isn't really taking off is because everybody keeps talking about onboarding because it's just so bloody complicated that no one can figure out how, um, how to get the masses to actually pick it up. There's a, that Einstein quote, isn't it? Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, and I think that's probably something that's very relevant here, which is, you know, how far do you go? I think Web3 is a great example. There's a lot of people getting very excited about stuff that seems almost impossible to apply to any kind of general public uh, when it comes to the fact that, you know, we've all seen people struggle using television remotes, let alone trying to buy crypto through some <laughs> kind of key-based process. The language seems to come with a lot of jargon as well. But Simon, over to you. What do you think? I was going to say, apparently Web3 is dead already. There's Web5 uh, that Jack Dorsey is launching. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone has heard about that. <laughs> I'm not ready. 
I actually think that um, I was saying before this, because, you know, Web 2, the whole point of Web 2 was that it was kind of like an interface on, you know, Airbnb and uh, Depop and um, a lot of a lot of the kind of apps that defined Web 2 were an interface on the kind of complicated techiness of Web 1. So I kind of want to know where Web 4 is. I feel like Web 4 I could get down with, just put like a streamlined user interface on top of whatever it is that Web 3 is, and then we'll be good to go. I think the trouble with anything like this is that we still haven't fixed some of the absolute basics that we should have sorted out in Web 1 or Web 2. Um, so the classic <laughs> example for me as someone that's done a lot of work in the travel space is uh, you go on any travel portal and they ask you straight away, where are you flying from? And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going yet. So, you know, and that's yeah. to do with the database and what sits behind. And I've been told a million times by people that's not a solvable problem. Until we get on top of problems like this, then I think, you know, all of this other bells and whistles is 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 kind of just what it is, bells and whistles. You know, I think we need to get to the heart of how we make all of the digital experience work for people. And for me, put my kind of uh, uh, kind of caveat on this is I've I worked heavily on Airbnb for many years, and so I'm equally responsible as many other people. But um, I think inspiration is something, particularly if I look at the travel space, that digital products could still do better. Uh, and don't get me wrong, it's a lot yeah. better than it was 10 years ago. But that kind of thing to me is much more exciting than uh, someone talking about decentralization and, and all this other stuff, which I think just feels incredibly intangible to yeah. the large majority of people that use digital apps on a daily basis. Yeah, it feels like we're going back to confusing people again a bit because you said at the start, James, that people are now quite au fait with a lot of apps. It feels like Web3 is sort of bringing in a, a whole new layer of confusion again, which uh, will put a certain amount of people off, I would imagine. Well, I guess a large part of it as well is driven by Meta wanting to uh, move the narrative on because their reputation isn't really that great. So a large part of the cultural discourse about Web3 coming into the mainstream is, you know, Facebook's rebrand to Meta or rather Meta's rebrand from Facebook. They're doing exactly kind of what you're saying, James, which is that it's, it's quite hard to fix the problems that already exist. So let's just let's just move on and bury them and just do something else now. Um, and it does feel like a lot of companies are kind of using uh, this shift as an opportunity to maybe, um, yeah, just try and gloss over some of the issues and, and move on to the next exciting thing. You know, like Elon Musk going to space instead of fixing Earth or whatever. If the uh, if you look at the artist formerly known as Facebook, the, um, the 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 challenge they've got there is that all of the innovation that they've ever really delivered, they've purchased, um, and so therefore, I think this is a you know a, a rare attempt at them trying to you know, set out and do something very bold. Uh, the trouble is, I think, you know, for those of us that are old enough, that we've, we've seen VR tried to be attempted three times now. So I'm incredibly sceptical about it personally, um, just because I think it's one of those things, you put the goggles on for the first time, you look around, you think, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then you get back on with your normal life because it just doesn't, you know, unless you're a hardcore gamer or something, and I know the large percentage of the population are gamers, it doesn't really fit in. They've also not been able to solve the mobility issues, the fact that you can trip over and smash your television or feel sick or all this other kind of stuff because you're essentially playing with one of our key senses in a way that, you know, is hard to overcome, which is why a lot of people in the tech space are more excited about AR because it, it has more of an integration in, in real day life. But yet again, you know, apart from some pretty impressive examples of that, I'm yet to see where that's going to come, uh, kind of come out and really have impact as well. So, Simon, what's your view as someone who's sort of made apps and made digital products? How does this chime with you and your experiences? I would say I would divide this into two aspects. One is the 
app itself, how to make an app usable, uh, UX-wise, technology-wise. Um, and then I would uh, talk about how to make people want to use it. So how to make it fun in a sort of way. Uh, on the, I'll start with the second one. When I thought about Depop, um, I was in Milan, where I was born and raised. So I have to mention my Italian accent is due to the fact that I was born and raised in Italy, despite my English name. So apologies for that. When I had the idea for Depop, one of the challenges I gave myself was um, I said to myself, OK, Simon, there's this new technology coming out, which is the mobile phone. And the mobile phone has all these new things in it, which the web doesn't have, which, is, which are push notification, geolocalization, camera, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these things uh, in your pocket. So you're able to use all, all of these technologies together wherever you are. And so what I did, I think that was to say smart enough to think about this or just lucky that it came to my mind. I basically said to myself, what would a marketplace look and feel like if uh, the web was never invented, if uh, we started from zero? The, we are going from the physical world, no technology whatsoever, straight to an app. And so what I did was I started looking at all the apps that were out there at the time. I thought about um, uh, a couple of problems that I wanted to solve. For example, how do I discover uh, something new uh, and I, I'm, uh, through friends, through social interactions? So in the real life, I discover new products by means of meeting people and asking them and looking at what they are wearing, for example, or getting advice from them. How do I know what my friends are liking? who they follow in real life, et cetera, et cetera. So I started looking at other apps which solve these kinds of problems in other areas like Instagram or Pinterest or Facebook or Twitter or this other app at the time which was famous called Fancy. And I noticed that all of these apps had one very interesting paradigm which was that they all had the same design. Uh, they followed the home feed. You had a home feed where you could follow people and see what they were posting. Uh, in one app, you could see the pictures they were taking. In the other app, you could see what their thoughts were, et cetera, et cetera. And then they had a section called Explore or Discover, where you could see what uh, the team was suggesting to you, which then turned into more machine learning driven recommendations. Uh, and then they had a profile where you could see all the activity of these people. And so... I came to our realization that these apps were putting people together in a new way, in a way that web couldn't do. And this was thanks to the mobile phone always in your pocket, the technologies that, that I mentioned before. And thanks to, the, uh, to Apple, who, da, who has done an incredible job building the App Store with their SDK, uh, which enabled developers to build apps so, so uh, fast. Um, and so... Basically, what I saw was uh, this paradigm of recreating real life in a new kind of way in your pocket, compressing all these experiences into seconds instead of days. And this is one aspect. Then the other aspect is more about the craft of building an app. Uh, Instagram has taught the whole world how to build a, a, an app, um, a quality app. I guess that Facebook 
bought Instagram also because they were so good in building an app. At the time, Facebook's app was really slow, cumbersome, complicated. Uh, Instagram had these practices which were very, very good where everything loaded instantly. They would preload data on one page uh, based on what they thought you would click on that page. So any image in that page would also have the data of the image loaded, like the description, the co the comments, etc. And so all of these things were uh, very important. And I think Instagram is the best example of a company that taught the whole world in a sort of way how to how to build an app, which is, as uh, the other people in the room mentioned, super super simple. It's an interesting thing though, isn't it? In kind of like building an app and then teaching people how to use it. Now, when they change it, people get really angry because they became a benchmark and that benchmark, you know, people don't want to change. And so whether that's moving to a situation where posts weren't, were non-sequential or the introduction of reels or anything that kind of interrupted people's expected flow of it has now caused people to be frustrated or angry or annoyed. Whereas, you know, anyone that knows Instagram's got to do that because they need the advertising. It's interesting, though, because something that really struck a chord with me when you were talking, Simon, was this idea that um, you noticed that all apps started to look the same. And I think there's such a there's such a double edged sword with that, because on, on one hand, Instagram, you know, has in some ways almost single handedly contributed to the homogenization of global aesthetics and of apps. Like there's a whole um, design term called complexion reduction, which is all about how all of our apps basically look the same. So, you know, that kind of um, white background, big black headlines, very kind of broad um, blown out images, like all of that, which is, you know, very common on Depop, on Instagram, on Airbnb and so on, in some ways has kind of uh, contributed to a sameness, which I think some people are kind of bored of. And there's a lot of commentary around the boredom around how apps and digital products look. But then at the same time, from an interface and layout perspective, Essentially, what we've got is all of the most popular apps have almost crowdsourced the, the most efficient UX, right? And so whether you're on Netflix or Airbnb or any of these apps, everyone knows how to use them. But then if you look at something like TikTok, for example, when TikTok came into, um, you know, into everyone's lives some, somewhere amid the pandemic, what was really interesting was that they intentionally made it hard to use. And they made it hard to use because then it felt like you know, there were teenagers who I was talking to who were using it, who felt like it was theirs and theirs alone, because none of us stupid grown-ups knew how to use it. And that was the point. So it was a way to create like a bit of an in-group of people who were either tech savvy, young or both, and people who weren't. And I think now what we're seeing is that um, kind of intentionally difficult design is, as you've both kind of alluded, uh, being brought into Instagram through a combination of um, desire to keep up, commercial necessity, whatever and I think that's why you know the people who use Instagram and Facebook they don't want to use TikTok um there's still like a quite a big re retaliation against that but it's quite interesting how simplicity can be used to that end to build on that which is a really really interesting point I think is that we're finally seeing what the life cycle of a social media network is as well you know was MySpace a freak that kind of came and then died well arguably maybe we're going to see the same happen with uh Facebook Instagram you know, even Snapchat, Snapchat intentionally difficult. I remember the first time I ever opened Snapchat is I was probably in my 30s. I was like, this is absolutely bonkers. What on earth is this? And then all someone pointed me towards a video of a 16 year old using it. And it was just an insane kind of 
flicking of from messages to replies to comment like you know in in the most kind of chaotic way possible um and you're like okay right this is this is not not for me but then there's an interesting thing which is like is is snapchat kind of gone through its life cycle and then we're going to see this i saw a piece of commentary yesterday where the there's a this is a very specific thing but um minions had opened the new the new movie in the us and they put it put its complete success down to the fact that it had been really heavily uh tiktoked by you know a large amount of people and there's you know a billion people on tiktok and so all it takes is for the right kind of content to exist there for that to then push people into that space and so even if it was intentionally difficult in its space in its in, in its beginning enough people are over that hill now that it can drive culture in such a massive way you know and there's also been recent kind of commentary about the fact that many musical artists are very frustrated about the fact that their record companies are putting a large amount of pressure on them for them to make tiktok rated content so in a way it's like i think what it does show is this idea that you know apps have to be really easy to use yes to get some initial kind of uh, traction but ultimately if you do make something difficult as long as enough people want to be on it they'll they'll overcome the challenges and they'll find their way to use it though obviously it does skew very, skew very young i think that that raises a really important point which is um is do you design for all audiences uh because a lot of what we're talking about here is talking about a kind of a youth audience which is perhaps even you know dare i say it younger than we are um and it seems like the the kind of cleverness that we're identifying is that they are engaging that young audience but it feels to me the sort of challenge is how do you forget that when you're designing something that's say for for everybody and say like an essential service like a bank or or a um or pharmacy or you know you know nhs stuff so that it feels uh inclusive enough for everybody and and I suppose the other question is is how much do you extrapolate that out into into other services so that it doesn't feel as if these things are just for for those who can adopt it um that's a good question um I think that uh, designing an app which looks and feels similar to another one can be um a technique that you use also when you want to bring on board certain kind of uh uh, audiences for example i would say and actually as um you have all mentioned during uh, uh, just a moment ago the younger generations are more acquainted into they use new technologies more easily they get used to them and they are comfortable in testing and trying and playing and it doesn't matter whether an interface is easy or complicated they just find their way through it whilst as you grow older and I also dare to say it, I am quite old <laughs> compared to the new generations. Um, you start to become a little bit less tech savvy. Uh, so what I think we need to do in these cases is try to figure out who is going to be the, the audience for your product and decide how complicated or easy you want to make it uh, based on that too, uh, where uh, by easy, I mean... Uh, you don't need to read the instructions on how to use it. You go into it uh, and you instantly find uh, all of the things that you need. Uh, Instagram has sort of flattened the design of every app in the same way that uh, a blogger, uh, when even Williams in the, I think it was the early 2000s, he popularized the, the blog design in a way that then every website became the same. 
Uh, I remember when Wired magazine was the first magazine to re redo the design of their new online uh, magazine to look like a blog, um, when everyone else was looked like portals, uh, Excite, Alta Vista, Yahoo News, etc. And so, which is which is funny. And when actually when I when I was looking at these apps for Depop, I and I noticed this pattern. I thought, okay. Here we have something new, which uh, can be the design for the next 10 years, which actually uh, ended up uh, to be like that. I guess it's something that just makes something feel familiar, doesn't it? At the Super Bowl this year, I don't know whether you saw it, but um, I think it was Coinbase. Their advert was just the logo um, floating around the screen. So it's a QR code. And, you know, the, the beauty of that was that this thing which previously everyone had been like, well, you know, that's not for me. I don't know what that is. All of a sudden they onboarded like three generations in one like 30 second spot just by, you know, the combination of offering free money and making it uh, public because it was, um, it was, you know, the kind of action of the QR code was something which felt very, very social. So the kind of FOMO aspect. But most importantly, making it feel familiar through the use of a really, really um, kind of established interface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. Guess, the QR code is obviously as well very easy to use. Yeah, I guess that uh, we could make two opposite examples. For example, Snapchat, they have this new, they invented this new paradigm. So they had something, the functionality was highly disruptive in a sort of way, a new, a new interaction, a new way of using an app in, in the sense of the experience. So th they uh, match this in the user interface also, making it so complicated. But on the other side, uh, I'm thinking of an app like Monzo, where basically it's banking, uh, nothing more. Nothing more. And, and so they made it extremely simple in a way that they used, at least in the initial versions, but also now they heavily rely on that. They, they are mostly designed with the standard Apple SDK elements and uh, navigation uh, paradigms. So uh, that um, that could be also uh, an example of how you tackle multiple generations or just a single generation by being disruptive in one sense. And I, I guess the disruption there is that actually banking can feel very complicated for people and Monzo and other brands like that at that time actually seem to take some of that complication out and you know there's other examples in things like habito with mortgages and things that feel that can feel threatening or confusing suddenly via sort of digital disruptors were made a bit more simple in fact i would um actually say on this i wrote a report about this a while ago about like i feel like monzo as someone who um you know, grew up with without a lot of financial literacy in my family and in my immediate kind of surroundings. I feel like Monzo is a really great, and this is a great kind of segue back to the question you were asking before, Eliza, around um, how you design not for younger audiences. There's a great example of like empathetic design um, and really kind of putting prompts in the right places, making things simple, making things which are otherwise really opaque and really complicated feel really clear. Like another really great example of that outside of banking was um, years ago when tablets became a thing, Amazon realized that like it was a lot of older people that were using tablets. It created a Kindle Fire with a customer service button on it that would literally just take you straight through to a human so that if you were struggling to use it, 
you could guarantee that you would get through to a human because they knew that the people who were buying Kindle Fires were people who were a little bit older, you know, maybe like your, like your granddaddy might might not own a smartphone, but, you know, and doesn't want a whole computer, but wants somewhere in between. And it, I think both that financial point with Monzo and that are just really great examples of how you can use simplicity as, um, as a means of um, empathy in design for people that maybe don't always know how to use it. It's an interesting thing, like using Monzo as an example, because there's an interesting uh, piece that exists around that, which is um, in the UK, okay, we have looser banking regulations, but we have neobanks like Monzo or Starling, etc., driving expectations within the customer set of how digital uh, uh, kind of banking should be kind of delivered. At the same time, you've got uh, banks like Barclays who spent a lot of money on their digital products and have you know really built stuff over time. And so what it means is it's brought the whole banking industry up. So you know I'm a NatWest customer. Their app is really good. It's well built. It's very solid. It's got a lot of the kind of things expecting it. I then uh, own two businesses in the US where the banking products are absolutely terrible and are appalling and they haven't had that same disruption that's then brought the whole industry up with them and the kind of the access and like you say, the literacy, et cetera. And, and what's very interesting as well behind that though is that you have banks like Starling and Monzo, which are described as neobanks and from a branding and a marketing and a digital point of view, they are, but ultimately the, the way that they operate and the way that they bit, do business is really not that different from a traditional bank. And so what's actually driving this idea of them as the kind of new face of banking is the product is doing a massive amount of the heavy lifting there. Because when it came to like, you know, the, a lot of them don't necessarily have all of the products that High Street Bank has yet. But when it comes to that, they'll probably same have the same risk protocol, they have the same, um, you know, ability to be able to kind of think about if they were to do mortgages, etc. They're not really revolutionizing those fundamentals because you're still saving money or spending money or sending money. Um, what they're doing is they're really making people be able to do those things in a much easier way, frictionless, but also kind of thinking about risk and all of the other things which are incredibly important, particularly uh, in, in a world where we're very reticent to change our banking. But it's had a massive effect on the whole sector as a whole, which it, which I think shows the power of disruption in a positive way. We're going to have banks coming back in the virtual high street, maybe. <laughs> I would be down for that. I actually think, like, I do think that, you know, coming back to that customer service point, um, there is also, like, you know, digital innovation apps making it easier for you to connect to a person when you need to. And I feel like working in a virtual bank would be one way of making that happen. I wanted to just mention one thing, which was the way that the apps, the apps change over time and that, and perhaps this is responding to, to customers' requests, but that you get um, what Law brilliantly described as, as feature creep, where you just get more and more things added on. And, and I wonder if that's why it, it sometimes feels like things end up very complicated because they may have started in quite a simple place, but then as each thing gets added the whole thing starts to feel very complicated. But Law, what do you, you should talk about this. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this isn't really my, um, it actually, it kind of, the term creep in, in this context comes from, it's like a military term, um, like mission creep. So when a, a military campaign kind of gradually shifts in objectives until it, it kind of turns into this really long-term commitment. My boyfriend's a software developer and when he's working with clients here, sometimes, <laughs> Um, talks about um, feature creep that happens when the client gets really excited and then adds, you know, adds more and more um, kind of requests onto the the tickets for for what um, the app should look like. 
until it just becomes this huge unwieldy beast which is like impossible to design and very complicated and even harder to use and I think it's just like so interesting because it, yeah I guess it just kind of resonated with me and I think it is something that often gets created with social products again which is my my kind of area of expertise but um specifically I think less around consumer desires and more around um you know the competition so right now with TikTok everybody's you know the, the launch of reels and everything that's happening there there's just like this real desire to like be the next TikTok and it's like people don't want Instagram to be the next TikTok people want Instagram to be Instagram and for TikTok to be TikTok and that's why they have two social accounts right so I think it's interesting that feature creep is happening more from a competitive basis, which the feature creep Wikipedia confirmed for me. So it must be true. It's an interesting thing to build on that, though, which I've found is that a lot of companies think that new things coming out need features to justify their existence. And so a classic example of this is in the automotive space, where a lot of new cars, because they've got Apple Play, uh, uh, CarPlay in them and, and other things are expected to be kind of... Uh, have lots of technological kind of wizardry to them and the features just become noise on top of actually what you want to do is you want to drive your car and you want to be able to you know turn the radio on there's this massive scandal recently about the fact that tesla had hidden one of the very key functions that a lot of people used uh, to do with climate control kind of like two levels down in the menu and so what the argument there was that you know in my old analog car i'd lean forward and i'd turn the knob left for cold and right for hot and here i was having to go into this screen select two uh menus down to find something to be able to do it should i be doing that when i'm driving probably not um i'm sure tesla if they were on this would argue that uh, you would soon learn how to do it and it would become second nature but i think it asks interesting questions of kind of like where features are justified or not and i think it also asks interesting questions of what you're doing while you're using a digital app it's one thing for me to be kind of sat on my sofa kind of like in a tiktok hole not being able to get out of it it's another thing when i'm driving versus like you know and for anyone that's been in a tesla it's kind of essentially a driving screen with some cheap seats and uh there's a question there about is that right or not you know should we have the world's biggest ipad uh, next to us while we're driving along or is that going to kind of like you know for maybe the the, the less kind of uh, experienced driver, is that going to cause them problems? I'm going to jump in at this point because we're going to have to bring, to bring it to a close. But I did want to just um, do a sort of rounding up at the end. We started off, talk, we sort of quite quickly went into the Web3 debate. Um, so bearing in mind what we've talked about here, maybe is there just some, what are some quick fire points that you think people need to be thinking about then if, if they are going to sort of start um, designing for that space, bearing in mind all the things we've kind of learned along the way. I think the number one thing that anybody designing a digital product uh, in doesn't matter whether it's Web3, whether it's an app, whatever it is, needs to do is getting people to care. Because I think we're over the hill where people were interested and leaning in and were browsing around and looking for things to spend their time on. People are looking to unplug. And so therefore, you've, you, it's never been harder to get people's attention. Simon, what, what would you say needs to be considered? I totally agree with James here. There's so many apps that uh, are there competing for our attention and we only have a set amount of time every day. And so if we, and there are at least already 10 apps that uh, are in the list of uh, apps that we open one after the other. So building a new app needs to be something that uh, has to be considered very, very thoroughly. So uh, what problem are we solving and for who are we solving it? Uh, And is this, problem and is this community that we are solving the problem for 
potentially big enough that we can build a sustainable business out of it. Um, building an app is not cheap. It takes uh, years before you find uh, product market fit or uh, break even. Um, and so it, it's really important that there is a problem and uh, a market for that problem. Uh, then in terms of uh, design, my philosophy has always been to not make the, the user think. So it needs to be something that one can jump in and already knows how to use. Uh, obviously, there's an argument, as we said, about the younger generations, but I think the younger generations, they adapt to everything. So it's more about who are you building the app for? If the app is for a wider kind of audience, as simple as possible. Um, uh, avoid the, the uh, uh, what's it called? There's this uh, thing, um, uh, tendency, they call it uh, not invented here. Uh, many designers have this problem. Many engineers also have it where you have to invent something from you. Uh, and many apps have this problem. I would say uh, uh, use Apple or Google's guidelines don't try to reinvent anything, make it as simple as possible and look at other apps. If they solve the problem good enough for you, copy them. It doesn't matter if, uh, if, if they look and feel the same. No, very good. Law, over to you for the final word. What, what would you add? I, I mean, yeah, to echo the previous points, I think, especially if you're in an industry where um, there isn't particularly kind of social um, birth, whether that be, you know, um, pharma or health or um, or maybe even like food delivery which we didn't really get a chance to dig into then um, yeah I think focus on um, added value and ease of use but I think if you are part of an industry which is inherently social whether that's because it's a social platform or whether it's because it's something that people show off like a like a smartphone or um, you know clothes um, think about how to build desirability um, you know, and as I mentioned before, TikTok did a great job of that by creating an in-group. It could be about making it something that you want to show off. But um, I think that additional social factor is really important. Think about how you can make whatever you're building feel desirable in the context of the current cultural landscape. Yeah, less blandness, I think, would be a, a beneficial thing, along along with ease of use, for sure. Um Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it here. I feel like we could talk on and on, which is always the way. Uh, but, um, hopefully, we've given everyone something to think about along the way. Thanks to all of my guests, to Law, to Simon and James uh, for being part of the show, and to everyone for listening to this episode of Creativity Sucks. Hopefully, you'll join us for the rest of the series. Um, you can subscribe via the usual channels. And, of course, visit creativereview.co.uk to see more of our work too. Thanks, everybody.